tonight on Arena. Ken Womack on his book telling the story of Beatles fixer and roadie Mal Evans. And we profile writer Jeanette Winterson who will deliver this year's T.S. Eliot lecture. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Anyone who saw Peter Jackson's film Get Back a couple of years ago about the famous Beatles songwriting sessions in 1969 may remember Mal Evans striking an anvil during an early take of the song Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Mal was the band's six foot three road manager, fixer, bodyguard and trusted friend. And indeed, he'd found the anvil one lunchtime somewhere near the Twix in him studios in response to a request from Paul McCartney. Miles started working for the band in 1963 as a driver. Global fame came for the Beatles. He'd become one of only four people in their inner circle alongside Neil Aspinall, George Martin and Brian Epstein. Crucially, he kept diaries during that time, the subject of some speculation since his death in 1976. But now the basis for a new biography, Living the Beatles Legend, On the Road with the Fab Four, The Mal Evans Story by Kenneth Womack, a Beatles expert and professor of English and pop music who has written many books about the Beatles. I'm delighted that Kenneth Womack joins us on the line right now. That story about the anvil for me, Ken, in some ways, it kind of sums up Mal Evans. Get me an anvil, off he goes and gets one. It really is uh, Mal's story in a nutshell, isn't it? I mean, he he prided himself on being able to get anything at any time. And, uh, you know, as strange as the request may have seen, Mal knew a prop shop nearby and he made it happen. And, you know, this is because people think, oh, yes, that's fine. Just go to Google and you, and you just type in, where do I get an anvil? <laughs> you couldn't do that back in the 1960s. So, like, where did Mal Evans amass the kind of the, the, the contacts that he had, the knowledge that he had. Um, I, this is a man who started life working uh, in the GP, in the post office, wasn't it? It was. He worked, uh, he worked as a telecommunications engineer. And for Mal, it was a point of pride to be able to have the Rolodex, right? There's a word we don't even think much yeah. about anymore. But, you know, the, the whole roster of contacts so that he could find anything on a moment's notice. And uh, his whole goal uh, was to be able to almost imagine what the boys wanted before they knew that they wanted it. But how did he move from that post office situation to be to being the one who could say, here, I'll check that out in the Rolodex for us? Well, you know, he had those natural skills. Um, he was uh, a people pleaser at a certain level. He loved to serve um, and he really believed in the Beatles and their sound. I mean, he was committed uh, like Brian Epstein, like George Martin, like Neil Aspinall, to seeing them become, you know, world beaters. And he would love what's going on right now to imagine, you know, a number one song 50 plus years later. So this would be amazing for him. And uh, that was that point of pride. You know, he made it his business uh, to get to know all the music vendors in London, uh, to get to know uh, the police officers in every city they would visit so that they would have the protection and the service when they needed it. Uh, and, and the fact that he had that, um, you know, you're talking about the, 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 the services that he might need. Did he sometimes have to ask police officers and the like to turn their head in the other direction that it was the Beatles that we were talking about here and they, it might be best to ignore what's going on? 
I'm sure there were plenty of situations like that. You know, he developed, uh, along with Neil Aspinall, solutions for just about everything. You know, when the boys got into weed, Mal and Neil created uh, these fake cigarette cartons so that they could transport it across international lines. So, you know, they were they were quite innovative in their work. You have to wonder a little bit, what if Mal had gone into something else, right, more lucrative? He'd probably be ruling the world now with those skills. Yeah, he he certainly he might have made a bit more money than he made with the Beatles. It might be safe <laughs> to say as well. They weren't the world's. They may not have been the world's worst pairs, but in comparison to what they were earning themselves, Mal and uh, his counterpart Neil Aspinall, I suppose the other kind of uh, manager, a road manager and fixer of and getter of things, the two of them weren't earning that much by comparison. They weren't, but they were doing pretty well in 1960s England. They really were. They uh, they were at the top of the pay scale for their area of you know the country's professions. What what the problem was, of course, is when when the Beatles get into so much financial trouble in the early 70s and they're breaking up the partnership. Mm. Mal and Neil are making that same static salary, so it's not growing. And of course, there were a number of inflationary inflection points around that period, yeah. as as we all know, who yeah. were alive back then. And uh, they suffered and their families suffered in that way. And of course, probably the biggest mistake Mal makes is he leaves the story at the wrong time, right? Imagine if Mal continues on like Neil did into those more lucrative periods where the Beatles are back on top, you know, after the breakup. Yeah, yeah. And and and, the, and Mal's story goes in another direction as well, in quite a sad direction, but we'll come to that a little bit later on. But just to give those figures, um, Neil and Mal, somewhere in the region of 25 quid, uh, a week, which, as you say, a reasonable pay at that time. But the Beatles themselves, a couple of thousand a week is certainly what we're talking about. <laughs> so there is a bit of a there is a bit of a discrepancy there, for sure. Um, the writing of this book, how you came to write it, Ken, is a story in and of, uh, in and of itself. This archive that uh, Mal kept, he kept diaries, he took pictures, he had all sorts of things. Tell me about that archive and how it came into your hands. Well, it's quite remarkable, uh, and there had been rumors about it for decades. I mean, even before Mal died, there were there was talk about his diaries. Uh, certainly, in the Beatles' inner circle, John Lennon once wrote to Mal, "I've been dying to read your diaries for the last thousand years." You know, so there was this uh, there was this kind of lore about the materials. Um, they disappear uh, in 1976 when he dies. They're lost in the basement of the New York Life Building, uh, not too far from where I am right now. And um, there they sat for decades until a temporary worker found them. With Yoko Ono's help and Neil Aspinall and the great Apple lawyers, they got them back to the family. But it was during COVID when Gary Evans called me up and said, hey, do you want to tell my dad's story? And of course, being a person who thinks a lot about the Beatles. Mm. Um, I knew immediately who Mal was, and I readily accepted. But the whole thing went into overdrive when I saw those those archives. What did you see, Ken, that excited you most in, in the archive? You know, a, a good example of that would be a picture that we use in the book. It's a photo of Mal and Ringo on horseback. I mean, it, you just even thinking about it, it makes me laugh, right? Because it's so it's such a fish out of water kind of thing. You don't even imagine that something like that exists. But that's the kind of material that's in there, right? It, it's taking the Beatles story as we know it. Mal is writing in real time about them and their adventures all those years ago. 
Um, and it's sort of putting it askew a little bit like that. It's, it's humanizing them, right? It's, it's turning these, these folks into real people. And uh, that's what makes it all so interesting to me. Uh, and and in terms, it's it struck me that Yoko Ono and the lawyers who got that archive back to to Mal's family, it struck me that in some ways that was perhaps when the payback was going to come because the material that is in there, it is quite extraordinary. And Beatles aficionados, people like yourself who are you know who know the story of the Beatles backwards, this will fill in tiny little details and either confirm things that did happen or myths that may or may not have been there that didn't happen. It will blow them out of the water. It really will, you know. I mean, the Beatles, like Shakespeare, like you know, movies and television, you can geek out on it pretty hard. <laughs> and uh, the other night I was uh, I was trolling some website, the uh, Beatles website, with these really learned forums where smart people talk about the Beatles. And they asked a question, and I dropped in an answer, and I thought, well, this won't mean anything. you know. And I pulled it out of the diaries. And the next morning I wake up, and there are hundreds of hits of people talking about it. you know. Mm. So, yeah, it's having that kind of an effect you know, where folks are rethinking timelines. They're thinking about who played what on various songs because Mal was a pack rat. He kept every scrap of paper, every bit of information. I've been saying lately, and I, I believe this to be true, he was sort of the Beatles' first historian. Yeah, because one of the things, I mean, one of the things that struck me in some of the diary entries that you reproduce in, in the book is, you know, it, it's it, some of it is quite mundane detail. You know, we left the studio at whatever, 12.30 p.m. <laughs> we got home at 4.30. But then you go, all right, well, if that's what they were doing for that those four hours, then this must have happened beforehand. This must have happened afterwards. And that big lie that somebody was telling about that particular afternoon was precisely that, a big lie. So it will, it will really clarify things in, in many ways. Oh, it will. And you know, I'm going to give you an example. I mean, right. I was reading recently about Mal being at the studio and some things that happened while they were making She Loves You. Well, uh, big news. Mal wasn't there. <laughs> you <know? laughs> there you go. Um, you know, it, it, we, we make assumptions about their story and about the timeline. And, uh, you know, Mal, because he's writing in real time, you know, he's taking contemporaneous notes. He's changing the way we think about, you know, some mm. of these great recordings. These great recordings, by the way, that are already and will continue to stand the test of time. Let us have a listen to, and I'm going to have to listen to all of here, there and everywhere. And how bad a thing is that? Because there is an input <laughs> here from Mal Evans, but it's really at the very end of the song. So let's enjoy the song and listen out for... Uh, there's a lyric towards the end. Uh, we'll see if people can come up with the, possibly which lyric it was that Mal Evans gave to this Beatles song. I could have come in 
I think, 19 seconds from the end of that track and said, there it is. That's the moment that Mel, uh, Mal Evans gave to hear there and everywhere. We're talking about Mal Evans, uh, one of the great fixers, road managers and all things to the Beatles. With us this evening is Kenneth Womack, who has written a book called On the Road with the Fab Four, the Mal Evans story, Living the Beatles Legend. So for those who are scratching their heads saying, what did Mal Evans give to that song? You might elucidate for us, Ken. Oh, I will. In fact, for you and your viewers, my friend, I'm going to read the exact entry Mal wrote in his notebook. Lovely. Here, there, and everywhere. Lovely. Uh, I wrote that last line. Paul and I in the studio alone while he recorded his voice for the solo. Um, He thinks it's too pretty. I don't. It's watching her eyes and hoping I'm always there. It's a great line, it has to be said. It um, really is, and it, it, it kind of sews the song up quite quite nicely. You and know. It, yeah, it does, yeah. And, and, and it, the other thing that it shows us, Ken, is that there was a side to, to Mal Evans that was more than just the guy who put the equipment into the back of the van. You know, there was a, there was a musician side to him as well. Absolutely. And and there was a, an intellectual side mm. to him. You know, that was the biggest surprise for me. You know, all I saw over the years, like so many folks, was this one dimensional guy marching around with bass drums and carrying equipment. And he just isn't that he's, uh, you know, he's in- introspective. Uh, clearly, he was fun to be around. He must have been smart anyway, because yeah. you just can't hang with those guys, John Lennon and Paul McCartney and George Harrison, uh, for sure, if you can't, you know, if you can't take it with the best of them. So um, that was my greatest surprise from the whole project. Let's, let's, I'm only going to listen to about 30 seconds of this next one, and we've added it into it. Uh, the moment uh, when Mal Evans is present in A Day in the Life. <laughs> There you go. And I'm sorry now, Beatles fans who were saying, I want to hear the whole song. Well, we did cut in into it anyway. So, But it was just that little moment of the alarm clock. It's it, it, Again, that for me sum, sums up many of the kind of, the, the, the relationship that seemed to exist there between the, Mal and uh, Neil Aspinall, as we've spoke, we spoken about, Ken. It seemed to be almost as if they were really in with the band in that respect. Oh, they really were. And it was really just them... A lot of times, and the Beatles against the world. So, you know, they had to be on their toes and ready for anything. Uh, I think they probably played a lot of good cop, bad cop. Mm. Um, you know, they they took their job so seriously, in spite of what people might think was low pay, because they just believed in them so much. You know, that was the the end goal. Uh, the end game was to see the Beatles become world beaters, and of course, they have. And who would have known what would be necessary for that when it came to Yellow Submarine? <laughs> Tell me what tell me what Mal Evans did at the request of John Lennon for Yellow Submarine. Well, I mean, there was a lot going on in that session, right? <laughs> but he was, you know, they were going to submerge John. They were, it was great, you know, in a, in a in a bucket. They were going to get a water tank, all sorts of craziness. And then, of course, it ends up with Mal, you know, strutting around the studio with a bass drum on his chest, banging away and leading everybody in a conga line, you know. <laughs> 
I, I can't hear that song and not see that image, especially yeah. at the end where they're doing the chorus of we all live in a yellow submarine. Uh, but wasn't there some uh, use of a prophylactic? Uh, by... Oh, there was. Well, of course, and Mal had no problem, right? He had that in his doctor's bag, as he called it. Everything under the sun was in that bag. You know, they needed a condom. Here it is. <laughs> you know, just submerge the microphone. He, you know, he. That's again. He prided himself on being able to reach into that bag and say, "Oh, is this what you need?" So that was the use to 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 protect the microphone underwater. Protection of a different. Well, you've kind. got to make sure the microphone does not get in any unsavory relationships. Yeah, uh, you know? I, I thought it was about safe recording, as possibly what we were talking about. Uh, there. Well, there's that's a way to look at it too, of course. And <laughs> um, the, the sad part of the story, in many ways, comes when uh, the Beatles broke up and um, Mal went on working as an individual after that. What way did his life go, would you say, at that point, Ken? Well, you know, there was still a lot of joy for him. A lot has been written inaccurately that Mal was sort of cast out to sea. Um, He's still working with Lennon Harrison and uh, Mr. Starr because, unfortunately, of course, Paul was suing to end the partnership, and it sort of left Mal in the custody of John, George, and Ringo, and he continued to work on their solo albums. He was enormously busy. Um, the uh, The real heartbreak for him, though, was Badfinger. You know, he discovered that band. Uh, he had a place for them at Apple, and with the ascension of Alan Klein and then the way he sort of mothballs the Apple project, if for lack of a better word, really puts – puts Badfinger in, in, a, in a terrible spot and eventually even malice forbidden by Klein to work with them. And mm. uh, that's where that's what breaks his heart. And and subsequent to that, um, and Gary, uh, his son, who was very much instrumental in your writing of this book, Gary, in the foreword to the book, is convinced that his father basically orchestrated his own his own death. Uh, and, and I think all the evidence is uh, just uh, airtight on that. I mean, he he writes his last will and testament the night before, kind of a uh, a suicide note, if you will. I mean, he's he's been planning this probably for a while, mm. um, and you know, ultimately it had nothing to do with Beatles and everything to do with the fact that his wife back in the United uh, back in the United Kingdom was was dumping him. You know, she was finally she finally had it, um, and Mal and. Uh, in that moment convinced himself he'd never see his kids again. And, uh, you know, it's, it's as though, even though he'd given her every reason not to believe in him anymore yeah. <laughs> for years, um, it was, it was as though he was holding on to that. Yeah. And, and he walks out of a building holding a, a, a flagging a Winchester rifle. And of course the police take action and it ends in his death. That's right. Well, you know, when they say, put it down and you raise the gun, um, we know how those stories end, and and Mal did too. He would say to his friends, uh, even recently to that point, he said, "I want to go out in a hail of bullets, like some sort of old west character." Yeah, there's something terribly sad about about that that aspect uh, of the story. I must say, when 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 we come to it in the book, because I, I guess the man we want to remember is the big friendly giant in in some ways who's there early on. Yeah, you know, it's mindful of that old saying, right, that everybody you meet, everybody you see is is mulling over some challenge in their lives that isn't necessarily on the surface. And Mal had plenty of them, and he concealed them well. Um, all, all I can think about 
in these more recent days is just all that he's missing out on, right? Yeah. With all of this, it's almost like we're in in a new phase of Beatlemania yeah. uh, here in the digital age, and he would have just eaten it up. He he certainly would that. And we're going to finish with Strawberry Fields Forever, and I'm sure you can let us let our listeners know why we are why are we are including this one for Mal in particular. Well, Mal is, uh, you know, first of all, Mal adored the song. Mm. Um, you know, he, uh, it was, uh, you know, without a doubt, um, just one of those songs that immediately excited him. Um, it was a shift in the Beatles sound, of course. Um, but he, uh, also happens to play tambourine on it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was, um, one of the, you know, he's still sort of at the beginning at that point of playing on Beatles songs. It would only become more and more uh in future years so it was uh you know kind of a kind of a big deal for him yeah and and it's a lovely way to go out remembering him that way rather than the the awful sadness that was the end of his life uh kenneth ken womack can thanks so much for for joining us this evening and sharing your expertise and a wonderful book with us ken Oh, thank you so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. Enjoyed talking to you. You too. And let's finish up with Strawberry Fields Forever. Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry Fields Nothing is real But nothing to get hung about Strawberry Fields Forever And there you heard that little bit of uh, Mal Evans and his tambourine there. We were speaking about the book Living the Beatles Legend on the Road with the Fab Four, the Mal Evans story by Kenneth Womack. And Ken was, uh, what a wonderful guest he was there. The book is published by Mudlark. The writer Jeanette Winterson will deliver this year's T.S. Eliot lecture at the Abbey Theatre this coming Sunday, the 17th of December. The lecture will focus on Eliot's poem, Journey of the Magi. In her most recent works, 2019's Frankenstein, A Love Story, and the collection 12 Bites, Winterson investigated AI and the impact it is likely to have on the human condition. Now her latest publication, Night Side of the River, is a collection of ghost stories but as we might expect from Jeanette Winterson, there is a significant twist, and possibly number of twists. Declan Burke is with us this evening to have a look at this little, uh, this latest work, rather, and to talk a bit about how this most interesting of writer might approach the prestigious T.S. Eliot lecture, uh, which he's giving, as I said, at the Abbey Theatre this coming Sunday evening. Um, I suppose from the very start, uh, 1985's Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, Jeanette Winterson is giving us cutting edge type of approach to fiction. Now, when I heard a collection of ghost stories, I thought that sounds a little old fashioned <laughs> for Jeanette Winterson. But, you know, again, if you look at the back catalogue, she's written about the English Civil War. She's done all sorts of things previous to this that were not quite what they seemed to be on the surface. Absolutely, Sean. And this collection, it is subtitled Ghost Stories. Um, and given the, the, the previous two works, as you say, it seems like a, a very retro step. But in fact, once you start reading them, you realise 
these could very easily be titled science fiction stories as much as yeah. as ghost stories because what she's doing, I mean, the, the ghost story is, is it is old fashioned, pleasantly so, but it's also timeless. And what she's doing in this collection is updating it. She's taking another step forward. She's facing forward into the future yeah, uh, well, with the ghost story. And if I tell you that one of the stories is called Apparition, you say, well, yeah, that's typical. That's a ghosty story, but it's app hyphen. <laughs> Irishian. So there you go. She's yes. mixing the two things together, really, yes, isn't she? Is. And, and people are entitled to groan out loud when they hear that title. It, it's actually a very clever mm. story about uh, an afterlife app. The main character is Bella, and, and when her husband dies, she starts to receive text messages for him. She, in fact, takes a phone call from him. She realises that her sister, who's a therapist, has installed this app. This is not giving away too much this all happens in the first couple of pages it's what happens after that that she's able to communicate with her husband beyond uh, the grave through her phone um, but actually the, the, the most interesting part of that story is a simple stark question that Bella asks herself what is a haunting wow and and does Jeanette Winterson I mean how many stories are in the collection Do, does she does she give us an answer to that question in her own story uh, well, throughout she, the collection. She, gi- she gives us a number <laughs> of answers to that yeah. particular question all throughout. There's 13 stories. They're split into three different groups, uh, places, things and people. <clears throat> and, and she's very much after the classic ghost story, but she is very aware of the reader's potential scepticism. Mm. I'm not a huge fan of ghost stories and would tend to read them sceptically. So there's a huge blend of science and the classic ghost story here. And so in her introduction, for example, she would talk about the ghost story had a huge surge in popularity during the Victorian period. And she talks about how uh, carbon monoxide poisoning from gas lamps can result in hallucinations. So that might have resulted in many more manifestations. She talks about the upsurge in ghostly hauntings and so forth after World War One, which was kind of like the entire, she's talking about the English nation, responding to the industrialised mm. slaughter and the, and, and the millions of lost, and, and that kind of mass hallucination wanting to bring back the past, wanting to bring back uh, loved ones. And I suppose if you think about, you know, I know possibly going a little bit earlier than certainly pre, pre-World War One, the end of the 19th century and that kind of mix of science and gothic story that was around at that time it kind of makes total sense out of what she's doing in the current collection well you you could I mean look you've hit the nail on the head there you, you could say that she's mined this entire collection from the novel Frankenstein and it's no coincidence she has Frankenstein which, which, which was long yeah. listed for the, for the Booker Prize um, and, and that book of course was it was a terrific piece of gothic fiction but it is also as you say mm. it's, it's rooted in science or the science of the time certainly uh, the, the galvanism of electricity bringing you know dead matter back to life and so forth um, and, and yeah she taps in very much to, to that kind of idea in this um, there's, there's one beautiful story uh, it's called Ghost of the Machine which is a fairly standard mm. uh, title but it's a story about a woman whose husband has recently died another story along those lines but she is able to upload her husband's persona to this online metaverse and she can also upload herself so they can kind of live now, not as they are in real life why would you upload yourself you upload uh, your best self but once they find themselves living in the metaverse things get quite complicated well let's face it most people upload their best self onto their online everybody likes to put their best foot forward Sean I think that's that's but but it does it does raise that you know interesting philosophical question if you can upload something like that up online and and AI artificial intelligence can start to work out what the, how this person might have acted in a certain situation, 
you could have some kind of online response from a loved one. And there is something touching about that. It might be scary, but it's also quite touching. It's, I mean, look, it, I, I, you, you know the stories, you've read the book. There's, uh, you know, a very interesting question that uh, Jeanette asks at one point. What is the difference between a ghost, which is a non-material manifestation, mm-hmm. and a digital upload of a person's life? And in this book, she's arguing not, you know, she's allowing the reader to make up their own mind. But in, she's effectively arguing there's very little uh, difference between those two concepts. And and we're really only in the infancy of, you know, the Internet has only been with us about 30 years. Mm. We're in the infancy of artificial intelligence. She gets into the idea of what is consciousness. We still don't know what consciousness is. When we upload consciousness into the machine, what's the difference between that as a non-material entity and what we currently call ghosts. Um, yeah, some really, really yeah. interesting ideas. And I'm guessing <coughs> no ghost ghost story is another one that is playing around with this idea. So she's obviously having fun with the title there. This is about halfway through and we mm. have had classic ghost stories with a scientific or, a, or a, a technological twist. This is a ghost story with no ghost story, as the title suggests. But the protagonist is a doctor, very scientifically minded, and he's mourning the loss of his husband. And he is trying to explain the loss by reference to purely by, we'll say, for example, energy. So he's referencing the first law of thermodynamics. He's getting into quantum physics, all Mm. in a desperate way to find some way of manifesting his husband back into his own presence. Now, some of these stories uh, are interlinked and no ghost ghost story is followed immediately by the undiscovered country in which is the other side of the story, which is the dead husband looking back on Mm. his mourning uh, husband and trying, trying to, to communicate with him and say I am here you just can't communicate with me it's uh, yeah very very cleverly done so the the idea then I mean the, the presumption here is Asha, that's all supernatural um, bunkum but I think what Jeanette Winterson is probably asking us to think about a little bit more is perhaps science and fantasy or science and fiction or science and ghostly or supernatural stories are not as far removed as we might from each other as we might think. Well, that's exactly what you're saying in these stories. And, and you know, these ideas of like afterlife apps, the technology is there to achieve that mm. tomorrow if, if they want to do it. It's a matter of mining your texts, your, your emails, your voice messages and all that. And you could create a simulacrum of a human person who can communicate with you through a device could be through your computer through your phone so forth and that's just one example of one of the stories here all of the stories are entirely plausible in terms of the science if you're Mm. scientifically minded and they're terrific ghost stories if you're the kind of person who likes to read the ghost stories Some people listening I'm sure will be thinking this is all full of cleverality and I don't mean that in 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 a complimentary way that it might be slightly irritating in its cleverness is it? Uh, I didn't find that at all. Uh, the, probably the, the most profound thing I found when I was reading it is Jeanette Winterson's sincerity because you open a book, you're assuming, okay, we're in some kind of literary realm here and so forth. But as I said, the, the stories are divided into three different sections. Each section is punctu- or each section is punctuated with an essay. And it's Jeanette's personal experience of some supernatural event that occurred to her or occurred in her family or that she has experienced at first hand. Um, So, as I say, yeah, 
they are clever because Jeanette Winterson is a clever writer. I mean, yeah. she, she doesn't know any, any other way to be. Um, but she's not been clever for clever's sake. She's not trying to set up any straw men and say, you know, oh, here's a concept and, and, you know, and you, the reader, can go and debunk it or anything like that. It's, you know, she writes very soberly and clearly, Sean, about, you know, things like how computing technology will realign our relationship with, with death. And just as soberly, she writes about ghosts and, and their need for human intervention, which is a kind of 180-degree shift about we start thinking about what the ghosts need yeah. out of this. Uh, well, it's a bit like the, the story you told earlier on about the, the two husbands, one of them in this particular realm <laughs> realm of reality, the other one in some other real, realm of reality and Absolutely. This, these attempts at, at communication. So when we think of all of that and we think of T.S. Eliot and the journey of the Magi, um, I, I'm wondering, are there links in, in, within what she will be delivering in this lecture and what she has said in the in the in the collection you've been talking about? Uh, well, according to the advanced literature for the uh, the T.S. Eliot lecture, this book seems to serve as a primer mm. for what the lecture is going to deliver on. So she 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 starts from the concept of uh, were we led all that way for birth or death, as as T.S. Eliot writes, and she talks about how the, the poem is 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 hinged with beginnings and endings, births and deaths and deaths and births. And and the question she wants to ask and expand upon for this purpose of the lecture is, is artificial intelligence and technology, that blend, is this the end of humanity as we know it? Or is it the start of a whole new chapter in human evolution? And that is effectively what the, what the lecture will be about. And, and the other aspect of this that I'm thinking about... Uh, the three kings, the the magi in in the poem, followed a star. Now that was not some supernatural event. No, um, it was a planetary. It was an object that was moving in the heavens. So there's a scientific aspect to that as well. Yeah, and that strikes me that there might be links there. Oh, hundred percent. Because at the time, it was considered a supernatural event. Yeah. In retrospect, we know that they were following a particular planetary event, as, as you describe mm. it. So, I mean, as Arthur C. Clarke says, you know, all magic, all science is originally conceived as magic until it becomes, t- till it becomes true. Um, yeah, and near the end of Journey of the Magi as well, there's a line, we returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. And that sounds like someone who is, you know, re-examining their relationship with, with, with the mm. world, with their spirituality and so forth, not necessarily this realm. It's a whole new beginning, as Jeanette Winterson would say. So, yeah, I think it's going to be an absolutely fascinating lecture. And and in mm. in the way that she, they talks, she talks there about her, Elliot talks about the kings returning to, to their world, but no longer in the old dispensation. I suppose we, we, what we're looking at is this idea of um, a, a future generation looking back at us and saying, imagine that they thought that this AI was going to overtake the world world and it was going to destroy everything that they couldn't just see the, the positive side the, of this the, technology. The positive potential and that seems to be uh, another aspect of, of the lecture. Yes, we're, we're all talking about the likes of the Terminator movies and you know yeah. as, as soon as the, the AI takes over yeah, let's look at the potential for AI to actually dig us out of the hole because when uh, Jeanette Winterson talks about the, the, the three wise men, she's not that sure that the human race has proved to be as wise as it might have been in the intervening couple of uh, uh, millennia. Century or millennia, yeah, uh, of course. She might have a few people who would agree <laughs> with her on that particular one. So Night Side of the River is the new collection of ghost stories or Night Side of the River 
colon ghost stories you can work out for yourself if they are or not uh, is the book that Declan Burke has been talking to us about it's published by Vintage and Jeanette Winterson then also giving that T.S. Eliot lecture at the Abbey Theatre on this coming Sunday evening 17th of December although I think you'll be lucky to get a ticket at this point in time but you could always see if there's a, a, a cancellations list abbeytheatre.ie for full details Now, whether it's the classic Christmas treat of the original movie with Gene Wilder or the brand new origin story brought to us by Timothy Chalamet, Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory makes for perfect Christmas entertainment currently at the Board Gosh Energy Theatre in Dublin. The live theatrical version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is enjoying a run right through into January. Playing Willy Wonky, Wonka, rather, the enigmatic Chocolate Factory owner is West End star Gareth Snook. He's on stage right now in fact but this evening before he got himself ready to go on stage we caught up with Gareth to hear his views on Mr Wonka Charlie and the other winners of that famous golden ticket first of all however before we hear from uh, Gareth himself let's take a little music from the original movie Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination take a look and you'll see into your imagination it's the character gareth really the character of willy wonka what an astonishing part to get to play oh my goodness me i mean what 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 a lucky man am i i mean when they when my agent called me about it i thought willy wonka you know an actor always has a list of characters he wants to play you know and i said willy wonka he never even crossed crossed my mind and of course, and within within about three days, the part was mine, and I was like, "Wow!" Mm. And um, it, it, he's extraordinary. I mean, I've, I've fallen in love with him, of course. You know, <laughs> he's, he's such he's such an amazing, amazing character. Well, isn't part he's, part of the challenge of him? I suppose is that yes, of course, he's the wonderful maker of um, imagination and the wonderful maker of chocolate. But he, yeah. he's also pretty nasty, perhaps to those well, who deserve it, but he's nasty. Well, 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 this is it, you know. I mean, one could use many adjectives about him, you know. But And, of course, he's got a wicked sense of humour, which the audiences, of course, adore, mm. you know. And he's got quite a sophisticated sense of humour, which the adults and the grandparents love. And yet he's very, very childish. He can relate to children so well. And the children love it, you know. So because what what he does is that he puts these children, he brings them into his factory. And factories are very dangerous places, of course, Sean, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and the kids just don't listen. They're entitled. They're spoiled children. And they put themselves into those precarious situations. And he tells them, you know, don't play with the giant squirrel. <laughs> don't, don't eat the bubble gum. Because he'll turn into a blueberry, <laughs> and they do. They don't listen. Yeah. So, so I, I, I think Walker is trying his best to help them, really. But, uh, but he does enjoy watching them get themselves into these precarious situations. Absolutely, and I suppose in many ways, what we see uh, Roald Dahl, because obviously it comes from the book and it comes from Roald Dahl's writing in that respect. We see Roald yeah. Dahl 
and when you look at the 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 the, the songs that the the Oompa Loompas sing and the the lengthy versions of them in the novel, he really Dal is having a go at na- at bad parents. That's really who he's talking to here. Absolutely, absolutely, you're bang on. It's such bad parenting. It's unbelievable. And you know, all great novels or plays or or, or films or whatever piece of art really has a has a, a, a moral tale to it. Mm. And, and, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is no exception. It's a moral tale, you know, and part of it is about sort yourselves out, parents, and yeah. bring your children up a bit better. And children, do what you're told, not what you... And do, do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> There's exactly. a little bit of that. There's a little bit of that. Don't go in the vanishing cabinet. <laughs> because you'll vanish. You know, the clue is in... <laughs> <laughs> uh, however, uh, the other the other side of this is Gareth. I mean, the story, and lots of people will know the story of poor old Charlie and yeah. the fact that he has and his family have nothing. But the music that is present here, uh, first of all, some of the music we will be very familiar with from the, the film. I suppose I'm thinking yeah. in particular of the song uh, "Pure Imagination." I mean, it's a beautiful moment yeah. when you sing that. Yes, it's so wonderful. What what a, a, an amazing song that is! And again, the, I'm lucky enough to be able to sing it, and the audiences absolutely adore it. And of course, Candyman yeah. is another one from the from the movie, and the Oompa Loompa song. But the rest, of course, are all original songs that were written by the American writers for specifically for this musical. And there, they, you know, there literally is something for everybody in there. You know, it's wonderful. Yeah, there's all sorts of styles in there for sure. Uh, fans of Gilbert yeah. and Sullivan, I think, in particular, will be will be delighted with the Patter song. It's at the top of Act Two, isn't it, that we get I the Patter song? Oh, goodness me, what a number that is! I mean, I, 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 it's one of my favourite parts of the show. I mean, it's about eight minutes long, and it's where it's where all the parents are introduced to, and the kids are introduced to Willy Wonka. You know, and it's a, it's a fantastic patter song. It's great. Yeah, and, and um, I, I guess it, it gives us a sense too of the sort of the linguistic fireworks that Roald Dahl gives you in, gives gives us in the book, and then which have transferred onto the stage as well. That demands a, a, a certain kind of delivery. You can't just belt it well, out. Well, it's one of those songs that I knew from the word go. I thought, I, I, if I don't know this song inside out. And without even thinking about it, I'm going to get myself to a bit of a bother. So, so I spent a lot of time of it, and I could I could sing it in my sleep now. So, uh, but yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> Are you of the generation who would have read Roald Dahl as a child, or or not? <laughs> Let me be well, polite. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, do you know what? I I I I was born about uh, only about six years before the novel came mm. out. But I've got four eldest siblings, and I, we brought a family, a family of five kids. And we didn't have a single Roald Dahl book in, 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 in the house. And we were quite a literary family, you know. Mm. Um, but not, and I tried, I was talking to my elder brother about this the other day, not a single Roald Dahl book, which is very odd. So not, we both can't quite work out why that is. So I, I, but I came to the novel quite late, you know. Yeah. In fact, after I... Unfortunately, Sean, I'm old enough to have known the Gene Wilder movie when it first came out. So, 
So, <laughs> but uh, so I kind of knew the movie before the novel. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people come to uh, Roald Dahl of a certain generation come came to it via the film as well. What kind yeah. of pressure does I mean <laughs> follow Gene Wilder? There's a task for you. I presume yeah. Yeah, obviously you had seen the film. Did you go back and look yeah. at the film again in a different way when you knew you were going to play the part? Yeah, I did, you know, I did. I read the script, and of course it's a musical adaptation of it, but nonetheless, it's Willy Wonka. And so I did go back, Gene, I'm a huge Gene Wilder fan, mm. uh, and I looked at them both and the Johnny Depp movie. I mean, it, 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 you know, the Johnny Depp movie took a few liberties, I think, <laughs> with with the story, uh, but the, it, it, I think the Gene Wilder movie is closest to the story. Mm. So, um, uh, but I... Of course, you can't imitate someone else playing Willy Wonka. You really do have to make him your own, you know, um, you know, for, for, for him to come alive. And you haven't, I presume it's not fully out into cinemas yet, so you haven't had a chance to see the Timothy Chalamet, which is a kind of an origin story, it goes back to, goes back to a yeah. young Willy Wonka. Yeah, that's right, yes, and I can't wait to see it. I'm hopefully going to see it next week when I've got a little bit more time. But um, people, you know, Sean, have been very kind to me and they've said that I look like an older version of Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> I could say, I'll pull the other one, will you? Yeah. <laughs> what do you want now? Eh? <laughs> yeah, but I just take that, uh, Gareth. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with that too much. Oh, no, I'm going to take it, Sean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In terms of Willy Wonka and his attitude to the children, and I might get yeah. as much about Gareth Snook here as I get about Willy Wonka himself, which of the children do you particularly like? seeing getting well, their comeuppance well I mean you know it's got to be Mike TV isn't it because he is so obnoxious I mean it's unbelievable and it's always puzzled me because I mean I mean, one of the, the director always used to say to me in, in rehearsals he used to say you know Gareth he said I'm not quite sure where the Gareth ends and when Wonka begins so <laughs> I don't know quite how to take that to this day but yeah but I, I, I think Mike TV, because he's so obnoxious and, um, uh, you know, he is really, really obnoxious and he takes great delight in seeing him shrunk down to uh, to six inches. Cut down to size, <laughs> literally, yeah. Um, cut, cut down to size, yes. You know, the, the other aspect of what Roald Dahl does in the book and what is here in the, it's in the film and it's in this stage production as well, it's hard to be the good guy. Charlie is the good guy, and for once, the you know the good guy gets the reward. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what? It's really interesting. I mean, when when Wonka is left with one child, and he goes, he looks at Charlie, and of course, there's this little kid in, in his jumper and scarf, and he's, he's not really paid much attention to him for the whole of whole of the tour of the factory, and he goes, oh, one child left, and he looks at him, mm. and and then he suddenly realizes. He looks at him and realizes that it's him. He thinks, my God, it's me when I was a kid. And he takes him up in his glass elevator. They sing this beautiful duet together called A View From Here mm. and hands him the keys to his factory, to his lifelong uh, work. And if that's not compassionate, I don't know what is. It's... But, but pe it, people don't think of Wonka as compassionate. But from what you're saying there, Gareth, it sounds to me as if you, as Willy Wonka, it's it's only at that moment that Willy Wonka yeah. makes up his mind. So it was open in, in your mind. It was an open case that any of the children could have been the person who would take over the factory. But it's That's only it. at that moment that, that uh, Willy realises it's Charlie. Yeah. And it's when he says, when he says so humbly, you know, Grandpa Joe, the, the, 
all I've got, you know, I've only got a gobstopper, but that's more than I've ever wanted in the world. Breaks your heart, <laughs> you know. And, and then Wonka looks at him and goes, oh, my gosh, you are the one. It's you. And he, he, Wonka didn't see it until the end, you know. Yeah. Um, one other thing that I think is quite clever on your part to be playing Willy Wonka, of course, they all talk about him. We were waiting for him to arrive for so long, but it's, it's well into the, it's almost the interval before before you appear on stage for us yeah. to get to know you. So that's great. They'll all talk about me for ages and then all I have to do is walk on stage and it's all done for me. All the work is done. I wish. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> How exhausting is it, Gareth? Because it it is obviously a big uh, schedule over the Christmas period. I mean, it really is one of the most exhausting things I've ever done. And you know, like you said, just then coming making an entrance at the just before the interval, he comes on and he literally hits the ground and he goes from naught to a hundred miles an hour in seconds. And it's like a five and a half minute number. Mm. And at the end of it, I feel as if I've done a day's work. And then I, and I've still got the whole of the second act when I don't leave the stage. Yeah. But that, that yeah. final moment, I have to say, which is, I presume, part of what you want people to feel. I, I found that final scene with the whole the, the candy man can, the song yeah. and, and up in the glass elevator, just Charlie yeah. and Willy Wonka. It's very touching, very moving. Uh, Oh, I'm so glad you think that because uh, that's made my day because it's one of my favourite moments in the whole of the show. So I'm glad. Yeah, thank you. That's Gareth Snook speaking to me earlier on today. Um, he's playing Willy Wonka on stage. He's on stage right now in the Gosh Energy Theatre in Dublin. He's playing the part of Willy Wonka, as I, as I said, in a production that will run through until January the 7th, BoardGoshEnergyTheatre.ie. And I know some of you listening will be saying, What's he, why is he talking about Willy Wonka singing Will, uh, The Candyman? Because it's not Willy Wonka who sings it in the film, is it? No, it's the shopkeeper who sings it in the film. But in the stage production... It is Willy Wonka who sings it, and you'll have to go along to find out how it fits in. Here it is from the movie. Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew, cover it in chocolate and a miracle or two? The Candyman. The Candyman can. The Candyman can. He mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. And the candy man can uh, give you the candy that you need. That is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Borgosh Energy Theatre.ie uh, for full details of the production running there. But that is our lot for this Wednesday evening here on Arena. And it was uh, Ollie Hamilton who was the broadcast coordinator this evening. Research was by Paula Shields. James Feeney was the sound supervisor. And the programme was produced by Reg Luby. I will speak to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1 and John Creedon will be with you after the news.